The Big Light presents Hello, I'm Sean McDonald. You're listening to Blethered, and I'm joined by Simon McLean. Simon is a former plainclothes police officer who worked with a serious crime squad in Glasgow where he pursued drug dealers, gangsters, terrorists, murderers and paedophiles. He's recently released a tell-all book called The 10% and it gives you a very rare insight into that world and details just what the 10% of police officers are willing to do to make sure that those people they're fighting against are brought down. We talk about Simon's view on drug decriminalisation and why we need to take a different approach to Scotland's drugs problem. You'll hear about his early days as a police officer in Campbelltown where he quickly became pals with none other than the Beatles' Paul McCartney. Simon gives a rundown on the raid that saw then-gangster Paul Ferris arrested on the quiet Scottish island of Rossi. And you'll hear about some tales for the book as well. You can find the links to order it in the episode notes. It's a fascinating and hilarious read and I do recommend getting it. I hope you enjoy this episode. If you do... Share it with somebody that you think might enjoy it as well. Cheers. Just a quick word. If you're working from home just now during the pandemic, maybe you're fighting with people in the house over Wi-Fi or space to work, you're finding that working home or merging into one and it's starting to drive you a bit mental, have a wee look at Clockwise. That's where I've got an office in Glasgow City Centre. I've been working here for just over a month now and it's been absolutely amazing uh, with how much it's helped me to focus and, and regain a wee bit of clarity. I've got an office, but there's also there's offices to rent. There's hot desks, very cheap each month. There's unlimited Wi-Fi, 24-hour access. If you've got a hot desk, you've got your own allocated desk and storage right in the middle of town, so it's easy to get to, and they're modern and comfortable offices as well. Get in touch with Clockwise via email and quote Sean McDonald Blether to them, and he'll talk you through what options are available. The links to that are available in the episode notes, or you can just Google them. Definitely worth a look. So as explained in the intro, this is attempt two, part two, take two, whatever you want to call it. Simon, thanks very much for coming back in, mate. No problem. Obviously a bit of a nightmare, but do you know what? It could be a blessing in disguise because so much has happened since we did sit down and speak because it was a few months ago, wasn't it? It was, aye, and there's a lot changed since then. The book is out, the 10%, the truth, the whole truth, something like the truth. That's a, that's a nice wee tagline. Archie McPherson calls it a hugely entertaining read. We're going to get into it. It cost me a lot of money. (laughs) (laughs) I know, I know, a lot of blackmailing. Um, No, it's 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 such a fascinating thing, and I'm I'm absolutely dying to read it. And I've got a signed quality, a signed quality, a signed copy. Um, If you want to get your hands on a copy, it's a ten percent. Check the links in the episode notes because it is what is going to be a hugely entertaining read and uh, get into the real nitty gritty of working in the police. before we do, can I have a have a sort of a chat about everything? I suppose give us a wee idea of your your upbringing because you know were you born into a a police type family? Doesn't seem so. Feel what I remember. You've obviously not read the book. No, no, I remember. No, you but just I, got that's it. me just setting you up nicely. I know. Uh, no, I was born in Postle Postle Park. Yes, as I call it, <laughs> and uh, very much a working class background, Sean. Very much so. In fact, when I joined the police of my own volition, it was a real shocker, a mm. real shocker. 
shockwaves through the family. In fact, they didn't take it seriously at all. You know, they thought I was at it. Aye. Or thought that there'd been some kind of administrative problem somewhere. <laughs> and all my mates were, aye, that'll, that'll be right. You know, because some guys you expect to go into jobs like aye. that, other guys you don't. But that maybe explains why I became an undercover officer. Mm. Because I was didn't suit the uniform. It wasn't stylish enough for me. What... Um... Let's try and get an idea for for myself included, but younger listeners, what were the police like back then? You know, in terms of when I joined, when when you joined, I yeah, completely different world, a different planet altogether. Mm. I, I'm still in touch with some cops to work that I do for the high court and for solicitors. I still get involved on the other side of the fence now for the dark side, <laughs> usually for the defence <laughs> and, and sometimes for insurance companies for high value claims and stuff like that. I mm. do a wee bit. Um, I've forgotten what the question was. <laughs> well, me saying what were the police like, because yeah. now, obviously, there's a lot of red tape regulation. Yeah. Probably not a bad thing. Like it could, You could probably get away with a lot more back then. For sure. And that's the thing I was going to tell you when I see these young cops now. Aye. we spend. T- I'm quite used to this without the microphones, because we spend 10 minutes doing the business for what I'm there for, mm-hmm. and the next hour talking about the old days, Aye. you know? Because these young cops have heard all the stories about the 70s and 80s, and they don't really believe it. Because they'd get their jaws, wouldn't they, if they were Oh, in two minutes flat. We didn't know political correctness hadn't been invented then. Mm. Mobiles hadn't even invented. The internet wasn't a thing. So it really was in smoking. You could smoke everywhere. I'm just giving you a few examples of how the environment has changed so much. I suppose... Like policing at your own discretion, you could maybe call it like being able to give somebody a bit of a slap or whatever. That's really strange you saying that. Because I think you've hacked my account, because <laughs> I'm on a, a, a Facebook page called Semper Vigilo, which right. is, is on the badge of the police. It means always vigilant, but it's Aye. on the police badge on their hat. And it's ex-cops mostly, four and a half thousand, five thousand retired cops. Mm-hmm. And somebody posted a question a couple of days ago saying, did you ever use your initiative and not book somebody. And it just flooded with guys with stories about catching a guy with a tenor bag, but his mum's sitting in the car. Mm. That's the one that caught me. And his mum comes over and says, officer, officer, I gave him the money to get that because he was rattling so much I was worried about him. And the cop let him go with his mum. And years later, the guy looked him up when he had his own family and he had his career and a job and all the rest of it, and thanked him because he got into rehab and he mm-hmm. got himself sorted out. There's thousands of stories like that, but the theme running through it all is you couldn't do it now. Mm. Everything's so live now. Cop doesn't bring out a notebook anymore. He has to bring out a PDF, I think it's called, and it's going on it like whatever he writes in there is there forever. Aye, that's it. So they don't have anything like the discretion that we had when we were co- young cops on the beat. I suppose, like, one of the concepts of the book, the 10%, you know, you, you talk about this, the 10% of cops that have to go, that extra 10%, uh, and all, like, crossing the line or bending the rules somewhat mm-hmm. um, to get things done. Yeah. I suppose the question... And that's part of it, aye, initiative aye. like that. Because, and my theory is that young cops now, because I have interfaced with them as well, aye. I will today if I don't get back to my car in the next hour. <laughs> But they, they don't have the same initiative because they don't have the same experience mm. or flexibility built in. So they go by the book. Aye. When you're not sure what you're doing, you go by the book. Aye. It seems to me as if they're told you must work within these parameters, you go beyond it and then don't. I suppose so. Uh, and they're getting second guests on. Aye. I found this out just recently that because it's all on their PDF, hmm. some smart ass somewhere who's maybe never worked a 
the streets has came out of university and now sits behind a desk is monitoring that stuff Aye. and can say to them a week later, why did you not book that guy Sean McDonald when you you found him up that lane in Glasgow <laughs> City Centre? Because <laughs> I slipped him 20 quid. <laughs> um, I, I, I mean, it, it, unless you're there, unless you're witnessing, then, then witnessing something, then it, it can be... You can't really pass judgment. I do get it to an extent. It's like, well, these are the rules and these are how things need to be done, but I, it doesn't always work that way. And I suppose as well, if somebody is operating in serious crime and bending the rules as much as they can, then there has to be a bit of maybe flexibility or rule bending or rule oversight mm-hmm. if you're trying to if you're trying to combat that. There's two two or three aspects to this. The one I want to point out to you is that uh, the the 10%, the book, is built, uh, and a lot of the stuff I'm doing now is around the Drugs, Misuse of Drugs Act, mm-hmm. uh, to get it repealed. But a lot of that police work and undercover work is about information and intelligence. Mm-hmm. And the way you get it is by doing a turn, a turn for a turn. Yep. That's how the world works, Aye. isn't it? You win, I win. Exactly. And that's, we walk away quite happy. So if you go by the book and you're going to do somebody for everything all the time, for speed guns or whatever, you're never going to have real interface. You're never going to get the turn. Aye. Whereas if I let you keep your tenner bag and you tell me where you got it, <laughs> we both win. <laughs> Aye, absolutely. I suppose we should just touch on that, the, the, draw, the, the drugs thing you were talking about. So I believe at the point of being this episode will be released, it'll be the second last episode. If you listen to it with Peter Crycant, the guy who is campaigning for drug law reform in Scotland and is operating the drug consumption rooms. If you haven't heard it, I recommend having a listen because it was interesting. And we discussed the benefits across the board of decriminalising drugs yeah. well there's decriminalising but I think that's a bit of, my opinion is to de- simply decriminalise is a bit of a halfway house I think it's a bit of a mediocre solution to a very long term problem I think legalisation is the way to go because then it can remove the, the impetus for, for criminal gangs as such okay. I mean, what, what's I your to differ do you, do you I, I mean, it's I, just the terminology I, I because what I mean what by that... What we don't want to do, and I'll tell you why, I'm, I've become part of an organisation now that I want to launch in Scotland, because uh, it's not here. In Scotland's got its own... And 1,200 deaths a year on our streets as well, so we've got our own problems. A 27% increase for 2017 to 2018, which is which is obscene. What The, the point that I was going to say there about the, the decriminalisation is, right, if you get caught with it, you're not getting done. But mm-hmm. it's not being sold. I mean, in terms of... I know it's not as simple as... Well, we'll just make it taxable and we'll make fortunes for the economy, but the criminal gangs are still going to have the, the control of the market, whether it's well, decriminalised or not. Yeah. Right? So the three words, we want to scrap the Misuse of Drugs Act because yeah. it hasn't worked. Prohibition hasn't worked. Yeah. We've had 50 years of prohibition since the Misuse of Drugs Act came in in 1971 and Richard Nixon it was that termed the phrase the war on drugs. Yeah. A lot of shite. Uh-huh. Right? And since then, and this is... This is a, a voyage of discovery for me, right? Because when I wrote that, Sean, when I wrote the 10%, it was lockdown mm. and I had nothing else to do. <laughs> so I was telling stories to people for years and they were saying, you should write that down, big man, that's good. Because it's funny, right? There's a lot right. of fun in there. And then through the process of writing the book, I started to become aware that we didn't do any good. We actually created the market. 
Mm. We thought we were good guys on the side of the, the law, yeah. making a difference. We thought we were making a difference, making Glasgow, making Scotland, making the world a better place. What we actually did through prohibition was created the gangsters and mobsters Aye. that now control the black market that we created. Because mm. if there was no laws to prohibit it, there's no illegal to sell it. But what we need to put in its place is that control that you're talking about through regulation and control. We then control the market and we can control the sources, the mm -hmm. quality, the quantity, where it's sold, who's licensed to sell it. The same as we did with gambling in the 50s. Aye. The same as we did with alcohol a couple of hundred years ago. We need to regulate it so that we know who's using it and who's getting Because we're not going to stop it. Aye, it's not going anywhere. It's not going away. I, I compare it to if you're constantly just doing street-level drug consumers, it's like having a massive hole in your roof but all you're concerned with is maybe dealing with the bucket that's catching the water. <laughs> yeah. Why not deal yeah. with the, 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 the hole in the roof at the source? And uh, I've, I had a, a ex, uh, well, not a current, a serving Berlin prison officer on, and then I spoke about it with Peter as well, about the cycle of offending. Mm -hmm. And it's like, just just stop, break up the cycle. I mean, yes. Stop sending people yeah. to jail, where actually it's easier to get a hot dog sometimes right. than it is yeah. on the outside. Yeah. And so they they all out, yeah. uh, they'll then come out and they'll then be offending. Or, uh, it's just constant. It costs £43,000 a year, apparently, to keep somebody in Berlini for a year, uh, or any prison for a year. And Berlini's jammed, packed, with low-level drug users uh, and petty criminals mm. who are stealing to feed habits. So that's all, we're, all I'm saying and all Leap are really saying is let's stop. Yep. First off, we need to admit as a society that this isn't working. Yeah. Prohibition isn't working. And we could go into the street desk, we could go into uh, methadone, we could go into all these subjects yeah, right. that are podcasts on their own. Mm. Uh, we don't have to. We just need to sit down and say this isn't working. We need, and what we want is a health-based approach rather than a criminal approach. Aye, absolutely. So that there's going to be drug users, people are going to, our kids are going to try it. Your kids are going to try it yeah. in years to come. You want them to try it in a safe place with uh, some standards in place so they know <laughs> I, what I, they're definitely. trying. You take an MDMA tab, you don't know what it is. You've got no idea. These kids have got no idea what they're putting in their mouths. Probably something worth worth touching on. Actually, I find it quite funny. And I know there's it's a sort of multifaceted issue, but some of the people that I've heard that I know talking about saying I'll not be taking a vaccine. I don't know what's that. Right. It's like I've hung it with you on a Saturday night, <laughs> and you didn't seem that fucking bothered when you put well, some tabs off. I, I was in it then, so I don't uh, know why you're so bothered now. All of a sudden. <laughs> <laughs> uh, all lining up in the toilet. I know. Put something up her nose. I know. don't know what it is. I'm interested in the leap stuff. I mean, how have how do you intend or how do you sort of envisage getting that sort of off the ground? Because it's something I think a lot of people would get behind. Yeah. Well, I'm interested in doing that initially because uh, I think leap has been. I don't know this. I'm only learning about it myself, and I've mm -hmm. got a meeting tomorrow with with the board really right. to discuss Leap in Scotland because that was my idea. There's Leap started in the USA, as you would imagine, yeah. and it was basically law enforcement like me coming mm -hmm. to the realization that they'd been. Some of them said, "I've wasted my career mm -hmm. doing something I thought was right, and all I've done is, is feed the pockets of these profiteers." Aye. So then there was UK in 2005. I think Leap UK was born. Now there's Leap Europe. 
Nearly every country in Europe. Portugal's had some fantastic results. Scandinavia's coming on board. Now we're talking senior police officers retired and some serving. Mm-hmm. They talk about coming out. Well, I came out on Monday night. It's <laughs> a leap for support, but much harder if you're in the job. Yeah, absolutely. If you're still a police officer. Because you've gone completely against the yeah. current, haven't you? Then there was lawyers, judges, uh, military, because in the States, the military, and, law, and we forget about customs and all these enforcers mm-hmm. that are all doing jobs to try and prevent the growing of drugs and yeah. the import- importation, the cartels that we're trying to stop. All of that stuff at a political level as well is going on. You forget all the layers that there are in the drugs market. So there's no leaps calling. And it seemed to me when I looked at the members list (coughs) that it was mostly ex-law enforcement. Mm. So I want to change that. Obviously all my ex-mates that are reading the book, most of them now retired cops are coming out and saying, you're absolutely right, big man, we fucked this up big style. So I want you to open it up to people that are not necessary. Some of the people that are going to be in my initial team uh, from the health service, I've got a sister that works in the, in rehabilitation and stuff from mm-hmm. the NHS. I've got a guy that's been 38 years sober who's a leading light with the AA and, and addictive services like that. He's a, an expert in my mind. Mm-hmm. So I want to broaden our Scottish approach, like your guy that's on the streets trying to provide safe spaces. Mm-hmm. All of these people and utilise all that knowledge and all that to try and put pressure on where it's needed. One of the problems we have is that the Scottish government don't have the, the power that they need to repeal the misuse of drugs mm-hmm. act. But there's lots of other things they can do round about that. Aye, uh, that's something that Peter was saying when he was on about, um, obviously it's, it's a reserved matter in terms of um, drug policy and whatever, but th- he said he was saying that there was a possibility that the Scottish government could then basically create, I can't remember the term he used, but let me just think, maybe like a, an enclosed area or, or, or basically ring fence in a certain part and saying this is how we're going to act yeah. uh, if the British government's got a problem with it while we try to resolve these rising drug deaths yeah. take us to court and then we'll discuss yeah. it there because yeah. I think you get to that point and it's well, some act, some decisive action has to be taken I think it is it obviously speaks volumes that so many people in law enforcement and rehabilitation and health service yeah. are all judges and lawyers are all saying look this is just going to be this continuing mm-hmm. per- self-perpetuating problem unless we start to deal with it at the root and then remove people from there's it there's a lot of vested interest in there of course mm. making money out of this market yeah, yeah, like yeah. any market and I don't mean the drug dealers and whatnot. I mean the health service and whatnot. I've yeah. got jobs invested in there but we can convert those jobs to actually helping people properly mm-hmm. without putting them in the jail for Aye. A pointless exercise. It's been gone forever. Um, back, t- back to you. Mm-hmm. Less interesting. Nah, um, <laughs> when I was on, well, just to finish that, when I was on Book Week Scotland on Monday night doing right. a, a debate, it was a live debate on Monday night with Book Week Scotland and three of us ex-cops got asked to come on and talk about the future of policing in mm-hmm. Scotland. And, uh, and the guy, one of the, the senior officers, whenever... They put a bit on STV, they put a wee clip on STV News about this, but they put, always put somebody to balance it. So they put an ex-chief constable, Oliver, from Lothian and Borders, a dinosaur. Right. And their kind of arguments are, which are, are fine, because there's lots of people who don't know what we know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And think, oh, no, that's the law, you just go by the law. He said it's like a, a toothpaste once you take the toothpaste out, you can't get it back in. This is legalisation or decriminalisation, which is up. I couldn't help laughing when aye. he said it because nobody ever empties a tube of toothpaste in one go. Aye, aye, I know. 
I can see how vain you are, Sean, but I know that you don't use a whole <laughs> tube of toothpaste just in the a, morning. Just a quarter, eh? So that's what you're saying is you take a wee bit out, let's get a trial mm-hmm. area. Let's pick Portal or Govan or Edinburgh somewhere for a trial and set it up properly. Because we're not saying let's try things and see how they work. Evidence-led. Let's get the evidence together. Let's yep. get the expertise together. It's what we're good at in Scotland. And let's innovate and try. And there's lots to replicate in countries all over Europe yeah. and all over the world. I think even just from an, ob- an observational point of view, the reason I, I don't think that toothpaste analogy even really makes sense is, like, I know problem drug users. Mm-hmm. I mean, people that are, use, that are boozing too much or are taking yeah. too much coke yeah. or they're taking it on a Tuesday night in the house and all that. Yeah. All of these people have got they're suffering from some form of trauma whatever it may be whether it's depression unhappiness something that happened in the past Mm -hmm. and there's nobody there there are very 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 i'm sure i can say this with confidence there are a a, a minuscule amount of people who wake up in the morning and say everything's fine but i think i'm gonna just get absolutely (laughs) out my dial and smack the day or or, or i'm Uh just gonna take so much coke that i can't function there is obviously some sort of issue, so that it just comes back to the point of not like, as you say, health based um, and focused on recovery and, and dealing with things at the root. The mental so, health. Aye, exactly. Mm-hmm. Back to you, as, as I was saying there, I'm quite. Uh, it is so, are you a, my first sign up? Philippe. Aye, count me in. Count yes. me in. I'll back you. See how I did that uh, live there. You couldn't say no, could you? I should have said something then just edited it. Aye, 40 years of police officer, and, and you obviously saw such a transformational change. You started, was it 79? You get sent to Campbelltown. You didn't expect that, did you? No, I did not. How no. did that come about again? Oh, man. I was living in the, in a flat in the West End with my mate. The roof was leaking and all that stuff. I was 18. I'd been working in Yarrow's as an apprentice electrician in the shipyard and I had done my knee, Sean, playing football. The reason Archie McPherson's on the front of the book there is because football's a theme all the way through mm. the book. There's four chapters, really, of my life, four sections of the book is what we're talking about now and then joining the police and getting posted to Campbelltown and then I get made detective and sent to Rossi and then I joined the series Crime Squad. That's mm. the stories about Ferris and stuff that are in there. Aye. About my pal, Paul. <laughs> now, him and I are now pals on Twitter oh, because yeah. of the book. <laughs> right. I, I wouldn't say pals, but we've exchanged Twitter friendly tweets. Aye, and uh, and then latterly in Govan for ten years in Govan CID, and that's where a bulk of the drug stuff was done because mm-hmm. it was booming by then. Aye, um, and that's where the book finishes. Uh, there's a lot more. That's the second book to come after that. But plenty I've more to come. Thought about that yet? What's What's Campbelltown like to work in? I mean, there was a very famous resident as well, wasn't there? There was, aye, Mr McCartney. Paul McCartney. Yeah, who I met uh, a couple of times, actually. But the first time, there's a there's a, a show in Campbelltown every year, the June show, and they hold it in August. That's I don't ask, don't <laughs> ask. So everything's like that down Confused. there. Confused. And it's a kind of farmer's thing where mm. they bring their kids and they bring their animals and stuff and... I think there's a market. I think there's some kind of market, but there's right. certainly games, caber throwing and all Aye. that stuff. And the one thing for sure is there's a beer tent <laughs> <laughs> or two. And McCartney used to go to this every year with his family because they're very much into horses. Aye. So they would come to that. So I knew this. So the day before the June show, which is on the Saturday in August, I went up to the farm because it's only a few miles outside Campbelltown. And, of course, he had security and stuff. Guys with shotguns on his Sick. land and all that. But I'm in the CID car. I'm only, what would I be, 21? 22, maybe. Uh, aid to the CID. I wasn't even in the CID. 
but I'm away up, and all I want to do is try and meet McCartney. That's all I've got in my head. So I, eventually, the farm manager comes out, Kate Bobby Cairns, and he says, "Hi, Simon, what are you up to?" And I say, "I'm going up with sheep, Paul. Oh, you're wasting your time." And he couldn't stand up, <laughs> and uh, so he lets me through, and I go away up, and they uh, drop, and Linda comes out under McCartney, and uh, straight up to me. Before I'd only just got the door open, and she's there. Yes, can I help you? And usually in the polis, you produce your warrant card, because mm. I'm in a suit, remember? And when you bring your warrant card out, that's kind of pass right. to everywhere, right? right? Everybody's attitude changes when you say, CID, right? <laughs> they all go, how can I help you? <laughs> and she goes, so, what are you doing up here? She never flinched. <laughs> in fact, she got worse, because what I'd forgotten was McCartney had been done for about a hash, I think, in Japan or something oh, like right. that. He'd been into a wee bit of boiler. But this is only about six months after Lennon was shot, Right. So I thought I had a good excuse to be there on right. security grounds. But I'm honest to God, Sean, I wilted in the face of this, right? <laughs> she was just bang. Uh, she'd more money than McCartney. McCartney, McCartney married into money, remember? She came really? from real wealth. Well. So, oh, yeah, that was the photography model, the Kodak model. Oh, right. I never knew that at all. Yeah, Eastman, the Eastmans. Anyway, uh, I got out and I must have been red, right? And, and rather... Normally, you face up to these things and Aye. say, well, this is why I'm here. I was only a wee boy, and I shot myself. <laughs> and she must have known that, and I was ready to get back in the car and apologise and say, I'm very sorry. And she wilted, and she must have realised she'd kids nearly the age of me, you know. Aye. And she said, do you want to meet Paul? Is that why you're here? And I said, I'd love to meet Paul. I said, but I was wanting to speak about your security arrangements. And she went, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and took me in. Wow. And just changed completely and became a mum because all the kids were there. It was a farmhouse. Yeah. And it was like a real farmhouse kitchen. And sure enough, the man himself comes strolling in, you know. Way. So I spent the next hour there, about an hour, and he took me. We, we had a cup of coffee around the table and all the kids. I was the novelty. I was the celebrity. Aye. If you think about it, how many strangers get in that house? Aye. None. So he was telling stories to the kids about getting done by the police in Liverpool. He said, I, he used to, I can't do the Scouser accent, he used to get stopped all the time in Liverpool because he drove an E-type right. when he was 18 years of age, oh, you know, aye. and the police would be stopping him. So he's telling stories like that, and the kids weren't interested in his stories. Probably heard them all <laughs> a thousand times. They don't want to talk to me about being a policeman. <laughs> <laughs> so eventually he said, do you want to be tour of the farm? I said, aye. You know, Sean, you do know this because you meet so many people. There's a thing in my book that says that of every ten people you meet, you'll hit it off with three. Mm. You'll not like two or three. That you just know, it's just no there. Aye. And the other ones are kind of in the middle. They're just guys, you know, and you don't have any feelings either way. Well, he was definitely one of the first three. Him and I just clicked. Brilliant. A sense of, the Scousers are like that as well. They're like Glaswegians, like Jordies as well. You know, there's a... There's a working-class bond there. So he gave me a wee tour of the farm, showed me his studio where Wings had made the album. Unbelievable. Uh, all the stuff was switched on. I said, you know you've left your stuff on? You know, I'm thinking this must cost a fortune in electricity. <laughs> and he said, it's left on all the time and it's kept at a certain temperature in here at 78 degrees or whatever for tuning purposes. Because mm. it's a studio, it's a recording studio as Unreal. well. Showed me the piano. He never showed me. We walked past the piano from Magical Mystery Tour, you know, the... The psychedelic aye, piano. Aye. And I commented on it, but he was just... That's was, unbelievable. Yeah. So we went back to the kitchen, blethering away, and I was in a band at the time. I was playing in a band called Horizon down in Campbelltown. We played all over Scotland, but we were quite a good band. And uh, 
played the basses, RF bass and the Yanks bass and all that. So I told McCartney this. And we were playing on the on the Saturday night, the next night. So it shows you how we quit, because I said, <laughs> we're playing tomorrow night, Paul, you maybe nip down, bring your bass and that, you know. And he's, aye, aye, that's a okay. I'll come down for a pint, maybe. He never trapped, obviously. Aye. But the whole night, I'm waiting for him walking in the door <laughs> like a fanny, you know. You're like, somebody's at a bar going, that dick says Paul McCartney's coming down here to play with us. <laughs> that would have been brilliant, wouldn't it? Oh, but that's how well we got on. I thought he might, he might actually turn up. Aye. But uh, so, the punchline of the story is really that uh, as we were leaving the farmhouse, he came up to me, all the kids and all that are away, and I'm at the car, and he comes up and he brings a plastic bag out of his jacket, and he says, "Simon, I found this when I was out horse riding yesterday, uh, and I'm worried that somebody may be watching the house, and it was a packet of GPS, John Player special fags, you know, the black packet." Aye, right. And he'd found it half a mile away up in the hill and he thought maybe somebody was watching with bins. Remember, Lennon was shot dead six months before, so it's not fanciful aye, at all. Aye. So I took it off him gingerly, you know, and I said, I'll get Interpol to have a look at this and all that shit. <laughs> I watch the telly as well, right? I'm thinking CIS, who do I know? This? <laughs> uh, so I took his fag packet and away I went. I forgot all about it. And the next day, I'm at the June show mm. in August. And... Uh, I'm walking, they're, they're behind ropes with the, the horses and Linda's got all the horses and the girls and the boys and, and Paul McCartney's sitting in his Range Rover facing out the way, reading a Glasgow Herald and there's about 180, 100 people standing at the, the roped-off area just staring at him. <laughs> he's not doing anything, he's Aye. reading his frigging paper <laughs> but all these folk are just staring and I'm walking behind them Suited and booted now, uh, passing by, and all I hear is Linda shouting, Hiya, Simon, how you doing? <laughs> and I look up, and all of, all the crowd turn round. They all turn round to see who this can is. Linda's <laughs> knows so well. And I'm waving back, embarrassed again, you know, and mumble something. God, Sean, I wish I could go back in time. I'd go over an and give her a hug I, now, you know what I mean? I'd never see her again. I know, what an experience that is. I take yeah. it that must have elevated your status somewhat at Linda's. Oh, no, in places like no. Carlton, I'll think that prick. Who does he think he Fucking is? Fucking arsehole, I liked him. <laughs> That's mental. So, I, I, I wave to Linda and I come round, and as I'm coming out to go back to my car, I see a local car sitting with a young girl, a farmer's daughter in it, Lorna Black, her name was, the Blacks of Tangy, and she's sitting in her car with the windows down and a uh, uh, sunny day, and the two of them, because next to her is Heather McCartney, sitting mm. next to her in the car, and the two of them are sitting in the car quite the thing, smoking. So I come up to the car and, she, and I said, hello, Heather. She goes, hi, Lorna. And she says, oh, you're that policeman who was up at the house yesterday. How are you doing? Blah, blah, blah. I said, I'm doing really good, but you're in a lot of trouble. What do you mean? I said, your dad and mum don't know you smoke, do they? And her face, scarlet, right, with the fag in her hand. She said, you're not going to tell them, are you? I said, well, that depends. Is it John Player Special that you smoke? And now she's to totally fucked, right? She's <sighs> How do you know that? And I said, the reason I know that is because when you go home at night, you throw them away before you get home, don't you? Ah, uh -huh. well, your dad's found them and he thinks he's got a stalker. <laughs> I said, so promise me you won't do that again. Throw them away long before you get to the grounds of the farm and I'll not tell him. And I never told him, Sean. Because <laughs> I thought, grass. if I tell him, he'll not be worried anymore. Aye. 
keep him fucking worried and he's still alive <laughs> aye so it worked so he needed you he needed you he <laughs> I st- saved Paul McCartney's life <laughs> is he still does he still have a house up there is he nah. long gone well, I don't know if he's got the house but he doesn't get down there that's strange he's he married and stuff there's a nice monument to a uh, statue of Linda down there in oh, the is Remembrance there? Gardens behind the library the old library it's yeah. absolutely mental I remember learning about it in school because we get taught Mullock and Tyre on the keyboard <laughs> and then we get told the story and I'm like fuck off there's no way Paul McCartney stays in there but I obviously was there for years yeah that's absolutely and the mate McIntyre that's where he wrote McIntyre mm. there's a good story for a Scotsman about the pipe band you know how the pipe band played on it yeah well that was the Campbelltown world champion pipe oh, band right. the Campbelltown district pipe band were world champions at that time and McCartney recruited them to, to play on McIntyre they walked up and down the beach to make the video for ages mm. and when they did the deal he said to them I'll either give you now, I'm, I'm guessing now the money, but I think it was 30 grand that he offered them, or a percentage of the takings of the single. Tell, me they, more. tell me they took the percentage. <laughs> <laughs> well, they had a big fight. They had a big argument about it. There's now two Campbelltown pipe bands right. because they split up. Because that's what happens in Scotland. We can't agree about anything. <laughs> Jockstein said 11 Scotsmen on a football park is too condensed an area to have that many Scotsmen <laughs> <laughs> to act as a team. And I can see where he's coming from. It's how you get two different church denominations next to each other uh, in a village, you know? My, my, a guy I know, Demo, he said that we're not so much interested in what we're for, we're just interested in what we're against. Because he's, he's a big Rangers fan and we always kind of laugh about Because I was saying that sometimes <laughs> I say to pals of mine, I'll be like, Wait here, what these fucking Rangers fans have done, and I'll kind of go off in one and say it, and they'll be like, "That's a disgrace." And I'll go, "By the way, wasn't it? It was Celtic fans that done it." And then they'll go, "You see their face changing because they're like, how, totally, can, how totally. can I say actually oh, that's not that bad?'" I'm like, "You've just totally yeah. like you've totally condemned it." But now when yeah. I flip it around, but aye, that's so. What, so what did they choose? Did they choose the the money or the percentage? Thirty grand. What a bunch of fans. And they bought new uniforms and had an eye out and you know the usual Scottish short, stuff. Short sighted. When they it? were asked to make the video on the beach, they said, "Aye, but we've got conditions attached." And one of the conditions was <laughs> that there was an urn, so they could all have a cup of tea during the filming. You know, it's just aye. incredible when you think of who they were dealing with. Aye. <laughs> he's probably he's like this is going to be the so story easy. I've heard since from a, a source a bodyguard source was that McCartney was perplexed as you and I are and aye. tried to persuade them to take the percentage <laughs> and they were like aye aye that'll be right you fly man that'll be right we're too smart for that he's, shit he's, he's the money aye he's like lads I'm telling you you're going to make a fortune if you take the yeah, percentage aye you scousers you're the same if that was like, if that was my and somebody upper. told me how much they would have made if they'd taken the one or two percent it would, you know millions <laughs> It was millions. Sick, no, man. It's one of the biggest selling records worldwide. Uh, ever. You, um, after starting in Campbelltown, you end up in moving to Rossi, keeping with the, the sort of regional island life. How was. You do a two year stint. I never really told you about how I got to Campbelltown. We had no idea. There was eight of us sent to that division, L Division. Was it Dumbarton, maybe? Uh-huh. Aye, aye. And none aye. of us knew anything west of Dumbarton, aye. really. I had been down towards Campbelltown on my motorbike, but I didn't really know the area. Aye. We'd been over an isla. But eight of us get sent to Dumbarton Police Office, and we were all sat round a big table, and the commander came in, Mr Watson came in. And we're only wee boys, and he says, right, I need two for Oban, two for Dunoon, two for Rossi, and two for Campbelltown. Mm. You've got five minutes, lad, to sort it out. And when he went out the door, we're all looking at each other, going, what the fuck? 
So I said, I'll go to Campbelltown, because I knew where it was. Aye. That's all. And you, my mate Graham Kennedy said, I'll go there as well. Where is it, big man? Because for, for anybody who is unfamiliar with the sort of geographical layout of the west of Scotland, if you look on a map, Campbelltown looks really close to Glasgow, but it's about a 200-mile drive, isn't it? Yeah, because... it's 26 miles by air, apparently. That's not so. No, it's more than that. It's more than that. Sorry, but it, it is geographically close. It's Belfast. It's <laughs> aye, but you need to go this. You need to go this round all the way logs. to get there. Yeah, right? You need to go round Loch Omen, Loch Fine. Aye, you need to keep going round all the logs to get there. Up north and then back south again. And, and, and not to labour the point, but for any younger listeners who've grown up with Skype being a thing. Technology wasn't as anywhere near as advanced as it is now. So when you're away, it's almost like being in another country, isn't it? You're, yeah. you're miles out. Yeah. There's no GPS <laughs> back then. It's like being on holidays. Aye. I've said that in the book that when a Glaswegian leaves Glasgow, it's holidays. Aye. You hear the cans <laughs> getting opened up the back of the bus, Aye. don't you? Where are we now? Eight o'clock in the morning. <laughs> Party time. <laughs> so then we went to Campbelltown. My mate who I've just got back in touch with after all this time, Rab McCubbin was in that room and he'd picked Rossi and as we came out I said to him where are you going Rab? He said I'm going to Rossi big man. I said you're fucking off your head, you need to get a boat and all that no, you get a train to Rossi. Oh, fuck. That shows you how naive Aye, we were. And Rab spent his whole career there. I wonder if he's maybe thought, because obviously you had to get the train from Glasgow Central to Weems Bay. Yes. And yeah. in his memory, he's like, Aye. no, you get the train. Aye. Aye, and I'm going to Rossi in the morning, I'm catching a train at Aye. 10 o'clock, you know. And he's thought, oh, that must but be the train to Rossi. He's obviously loved it enough. At, uh, well, he got married there, and I think they had six months away in Clyde Bank. And right. I don't think his wife liked it, and she was a brandine, she was from Rossi. So they ended up his whole career. And I saw a, the name on Facebook a couple of weeks ago, a David McCubbin. And I thought, there's no that many fucking McCubbins about. Aye. So I got in touch with David, and that was his son. Aye, so I'm now in touch with, with Rab and his Brilliant. wife. And his wife might give him permission to buy the book, he said. Oh, right, that's or good. buy it for his Christmas. <laughs> stalking fella. Again, if you want to go Great audit, stalking fella, yeah. 10%, Simon McLean, get on it. It's going to Ringwood be a good read. Publishing. Um, how... I suppose. And I'll sign them for all your punters. I'll sign them. Brilliant. I'll get mine signed as well. There you go. Get your get your uh, your book and your Christmas present for your dad or your grandpa, your uncle, whoever. Oh, your mum or your granny or auntie. I'm sure they'd like it as well. Hello, Janice Forsyth here, co-founder of the Big Light Network, popping up very briefly to tell you about Unearthed, another podcast that I think you'll love. Edinburgh-based journalist and former tour guide Ryan Latto lifts the lid on Scottish history, myths and legends, uncovering secrets from the ghosts of the past. Ryan, give us a flavour of what listeners will hear. So Unearthed is a podcast that strips away the hokiness of Scottish history to find out what really happened and what it means for us today. I speak to people from all over the country and the world about our past. Unearthed Season 1 is ready to binge and I'm almost halfway through Season 2 with new episodes coming out every Wednesday up until Christmas. In the last season, I confronted a poltergeist, hunted some fairies, rediscovered a woman who rose from the dead, a man who challenged the age of the planet itself, a woman who disguised herself as a man to change the world of medicine, and a little-known Scottish hero who teamed up with Neil Armstrong to go look in a cave in Ecuador. So there you have it, Unearthed, hosted by Ryan Latto. Head to thebiglight.com for audio links and further information, or search for the show wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you. Thank you. 
Um, Rossi, obviously no so much happens, but there was a very famous incident where you're now pal, Paul Ferris. I mean, what yeah. was your involvement with that? I mean, you, you, you oh. were part of that, were you not? Uh-huh. <laughs> so, Paul, t- to give a wee sort of brief history lesson, and Paul, don't battle me if you're listening and I happen <laughs> to get this wrong, but there was a lot of heat. There was... Um, Paul Ferris had been instructed by his then... I don't want to say boss, but, yeah. he's, but the, the yeah. sort of colleague, <laughs> yes, uh, Arthur Thompson, to carry out an attack, and then he was told to go to his flat in Rossi and lie low, and then only a handful of people knew, and then you yeah. can tell the rest of what happened. Well, I was on duty. I was a detective in Rossi, detective mm. constable in Rossi, and I got a phone call from God, really, from a chief super or something at Pitt Street. Right. This was like God to me. How you doing, son? All right. Uh, I need you to do a wee job for us. So I get told to go down and look at a flat down in the front in Victoria Street in Rossi, top flat, see if there was any lights on, see if there was any movement. It was just getting dark. And and check for a car in the vicinity. It was a mm. Daimler, which was unusual enough in Rossi. Aye. And to phone him back. So I went and did that. And sure enough, there was lights on, the house was occupied, curtain shut, whatever. And the Daimler was parked within 100 yards across the road. So I went back and said, aye, it's there. I didn't know what was going on at the time. And he said, OK, there's somebody there, there's a warrant for him, or whatever he mm. told me, whatever shite he told me. But the bottom line was I was to go and get a warrant for the house, and he right. gave me the information. And uh, there was four serious crime squad officers coming over on the next ferry. And I was to meet them, get them digs, take them to their digs and let them go on with their business and help them in any way I could. So they were all armed. They were all tooled up. Mm. Uh, and I was a firearms officer at that time, so I went and told my boss what was going on, the chief inspector at Rossi, and he said, you're not getting a firearm and you keep out the road. I don't want you getting involved with <laughs> these guys because the serious crime squad were the 10%, right? Aye, <laughs> they aye. nut jobs, which is why I joined them. Kind <laughs> <laughs> of spirits. Aye. Well, you've either got a bent for that, or you know, you're aye, either aye. one of them or you're not. Aye. You can't kid on you're a 10 percenter, do you know what I mean? Because you get found out very quickly. And you can't kid on you're not a 10 percenter either, because you're going to rail, you know, Shush. you're going to rise to whatever the challenge is. So they came over, fucking nut jobs, and uh, I got them their digs. And that night, uh, we went to Paul's house. They, they hit Paul, we'd call it a hit, we went and turned Paul's flat. Now, when it went down, I had no gun, remember? The four of them went to the door Aye. with their shooters, and I was kicking around the corner of the close. It's top flat, so I'm just kicking out, seeing what's going on. And they trapped the door. Paul answered that he had on a, a goonie. A, a goonie. Oh, Sorry, Paul. Like, like dressing <laughs> a dressing gown. A dressing gown. <laughs> <laughs> and the suspenders. And <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, he'd done his dressing gown, he was obviously getting ready for his bed or whatever. Opened the door and they just pounced on him, right? And they had him down on the ground, face up. And all I remember seeing, Sean, is the, the guns shaking. They all had their guns mm. at his face, shaking. Because we don't draw firearms in Scotland very often. We maybe carry them quite a bit. Very seldom you actually point it at someone. Aye. In fact, in the police... Your training is that if you produce your firearm, you're ready to use it. Aye. And you warn somebody twice. Yeah. Or you shoot him. But in any event, he's getting shot. And you don't shoot to wound anybody. 
shoot, shoot to kill. Because if you've made the decision that that's the only way you can solve this situation, Aye. there's lives at stake, mm. then you shoot to kill. So that's the training that's drummed into you. So taking a gun out and pointing it at someone, it's like taking your bat out and threatening. You never, ever, ever do that. Mm. If I'm taking my bat out, I'm doing it discreetly, and I'm going to hit you before you know it's out. Do you know Aye. what I mean? Because yeah, I've yeah. decided I can't control this without it. Instead of saying... Instead I'm, of saying, Sean, I'm going to bat a fuck it, and you just take it off. I get yourself prepared to <laughs> defend yourself. Just take it yourself. off me and bat a fuck it <laughs> me. That'll be right. <laughs> so it's all sneaky stuff. Did you see that? Whack. Aye. <laughs> for the shoulder. Temper, always that, for the shoulder. There's that 10% coming back out again. But you always aim for the shoulder area. Right. It's just they always move the fucking heads. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, there's guns, and, and all I remember is them shouting at him, right, you're under arrest, detained, whatever it was, and the gun shaking in his face, and Paul looking at them as if, what the fuck? And he says, is that a Smith & Wesson? See, <laughs> snub nose. <laughs> Just calm as you like. Uh-huh. I only met Paul a couple of times, never really like this or anything. Uh-huh. But just calm, calm as you like. Mm. Not a nerve in his body. Uh-huh. The Polish called him Babyface. That was the nickname we had for him because that's what he was like uh-huh. and just totally nervous. And yeah. he, he's written about this in his book as well, apparently, about this story. But he's also told me on Twitter that I need to be careful with this story because he's got the court papers. Oh, right. <laughs> <laughs> so he knows exactly what happened. I have re- I've read most of his books. He <laughs> say the, I think he's, one of his quotes is, the pen is mightier than the sword. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. He he's discovered with, that, hasn't he? wrote the books with Edge McKay, who I think sadly passed away. Yes, yeah. I loved reading the books when I was younger. I, and I get tasked with searching the demo. Mm. And I thought... Knowing what I know now, and at the time, I knew that I was well out of my depths with these guys. You know, they, were, they weren't telling me what they were doing or anything like that. I was mm. just a wee boy. And I thought, I'm going to find the drugs here. If there's drugs to be found, they're going to make me find them. Whether it's legitimate or not, I don't know. Mm-hmm. But that's what I would have done if I was going to fit them up. Or if he did have, see if Paul did have drugs in the house or in the, the car, I'd have let me and the other boy that was my boy, Aye. find them. Because we'd have went to the High Court and the jury might have believed us, mm. whether it was true or false. My my memory from that, from reading in Paul's account of it, listen to me, Paul, as if you're not He yeah. did grow up in the corner of me, I used to be and for Rob Royston. Um, my memory of his telling of events, which I think was, was accepted by the jury anyway, hence his mm-hmm. yep. not guilty verdict, um, was that, I think, in the murder of Fat Boy Thompson, was that... The police's telling of events when they were on the stand or their notes that they took at the time yes. was saying, we found a plastic bag which was uh, contained a powder, which was brown in substance, but a forensic scientist was able to prove in court that had this brown substance been in the bag, the distortion of light through the plastic bag would have not have made it appear brown. Right. So there's no way for, you know, for them to say, yeah, we found this brown powder that would have been impossible because the powder would have appeared a completely different colour, which suggests to me maybe they were doing a wee bit of 10%. Maybe they thought this guy, by his own admission, has committed multiple crimes, but we don't Mm -hmm. have the evidence, however. So that's a funny... God forbid you were (laughs) know, But you know, it's a funny one, that, isn't it, that somebody... It is a real, I suppose, a moral dilemma because you could say, well, we know for a fact that this person has committed crimes A, B and C. Mm-hmm. We don't have sufficient evidence. However, isn't it fair that he's nailed on a different crime that we could possibly prove, even if it's fitted up? Mm-hmm. And 
And while obviously just embellish it a wee bit, upholster it a wee bit. And this this isn't me advocating for anybody being done, but there is a it is a it's a quandary, it's a dilemma. Because like, mm-hmm. let's just say. I know somebody's stolen something at my office and I can't prove it, but I can fit them up for something. Mm-hmm. In a way, justice is being delivered, yet mm-hmm. justice isn't being delivered, and it's a funny one. And what's it doing to you? What do you mean? What's it doing to the fitter upper? Exactly. Aye. Do you then become a criminal? Exactly. Because you do. You do, aye, because mm-hmm. as a whole, two wrongs don't make a right, and it's like, if I need to... And you've got to sleep at night. Aye, if I need to convict... And what if you get caught? I know. You go to jail. I know. I know. <laughs> that was always my 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 own belief was aye. that if the evidence wasn't there There is no credit then that's my job. Aye. Done. No I make it up. Because then and, I, and then I do the court a disservice, I do aye. everybody a disservice. Cause if you can't trust the guys that are doing that job, aye. you're fucked. You're aye. totally fucked. Because but aye. the threat of doing it is fucking brilliant. <laughs> we did a turn in <coughs> in Chicker Hill. There's so many subjects we were skipping over here, do you know what I mean? Aye. The moral dilemmas are cracker. We had a hide a, a kidnapping in Govan where they'd taken hostages and it was a big turn. I could be on about this one all day, it's in the book. Uh, they were going to follow the security corps van and they had his family Aye. Uh, in the house. We didn't know where the house was. And long story short, after an arm chase through the, the cemetery at Craigton, we got the guy, got him disarmed and got him back to Govan. And when I walked in, Orkney Street Police Office, Sean, there's a big marble staircase like Highbrook, I know you're a good ranger. <laughs> <laughs> big marble staircase. And as I walked in and looked up, heard the screaming, and all I saw was a guy being held by the ankles oh. over the banister of Orkney Street Police Office. You're talking maybe a 25-foot drop on his head mm. and this was the guy that we'd caught who'd said I'm telling you fuck all big man Aye. and within a few minutes he had told us where the the hostages were and we went and rescued the hostages as three kids a granny and a mum okay, who yeah. were rescued so were we justified whoever held him over the banister by the ankles mm. was that justified? That's it I, w- I would argue that it is I suppose because in that moment you Good. are you're starting on Monday morning on the street. <laughs> I suppose the difference between that one is while it's technically beyond the parameters of let's just say textbook acceptability or like sort of guidebook acceptability to do the that. Law. No, the law is the word you're looking for. Aye, the law. <laughs> but do you know in the sense that you, you have to you have to do, go that extra step in order to save those lives. Whereas with the the drugs one, it's like a sort of well, I'm just taking your word for it that you know that he's committed these crimes and you have to fit him yeah. up for another one in order to deliver justice in a roundabout way. But I, it is it's such an interesting dilemma. The one I was going to tell you dilemma. was we did a turn in Hill and we'd watched it all week. We'd been in the scheme and all that. It was brilliant. Uh, good fun. This was all good fun. Aye. Although I now know that we were doing the wrong thing. Aye. You know what I mean? We created this market. But we've been there. So we ended up hitting the house and... Uh, but we knew he had a safe house. So we had the house. The guy's already done about 10 years for dealing smack, mm. so he's in serious bother here, right? And those days, sentences were really tough on smack because they still thought they could stop it through mm. prohibition. But as usual, there's a turn to be done, right? He's caught with maybe 20 tenor bags or something. At a push, you could get away with personal use, right? But it's not, a, it's not the it's end of the world. It's not the end of the world. But he's got a safe house where the stash is. Uh-huh. And the deal I do with him is that if he gives me the stash, I'll lose the stash. And he'll just have this to deal with, whatever we've caught. And I might even reduce that a wee bit to keep it as personal. Mm-hmm. It's a major deal in Sugar Hill. 
And he gives me the supply line. Because it's a good supply line that he's Aye. got. We know that. So he does that. And as a result, he gets done for 10 or 15 bags. Probably got some time, but no much because of his record. Uh, his family stays intact. Because another threat was that his son had been going to the safe house and climbing up the outside, up mm. the drain pipe to the top flat Aye. to get to the stash. So part of the threat was to do his son as involved in it as well. He was only about 12 or something. You know, but you threaten whatever you can. <laughs> whatever leverage you've got, you've got to use it. Um, so he does the deal. And because of that, uh, I got the drug squad involved because it was getting big then. And we, we, we got the dealer up at Creighton Cemetery doing a, doing a deal. And it all led to a big turn down in Greenock, uh, a ship. Wow. There was millions of pounds worth of, I can't even, it was cannabis and coke involved. But I wasn't even involved in that. That was a customs mm-hmm. uh, drug squad turn, Scottish crime squad turn, months later. But that all stemmed from that deal that I did in that house. But now we go to the safe house under the floorboards where they sent us, and I've got a, a big bag of smack, right? Jackpot. <laughs> it's mine. <laughs> you had a good weekend, Natalie. <laughs> I did. We took uh, a junkie, a local junkie, who was a, a wee bit of a tout. Everybody's a tout in the drugs world, right? There's no such thing as an informant. They're all informants because to get out, to get the next hit, Aye. they'll tell you fucking anything, right? They'll shop their granny to get out, which is why the whole drugs world's so infiltrated with police. Mm-hmm. So we take him out to Mogai in the car and uh, give him some... Uh, magazines and scissors <laughs> and he sits in the back of the car we're out because the fucking smack goes everywhere in the car right? so we're outside having a fag for at least a couple of hours while he makes up all these tenor bags <laughs> we had hundreds of tenor bags gave him a few for his trouble and sent him packing threw him out in govern under strict orders to tell no one Hi. no one full well that that's exactly what he's going to do and do is start telling everything. McLean's got a couple hundred bags of smart ten of bags. <laughs> oh dear. So you can imagine the reception that we, we shut Govan. It was closed for Aye. smack. Nobody was going to raise their head above the parapet and deal anything, thinking that we were going to walk in the door able to plant 210 bags on them. Gives them a 20-year sentence. There you are, Sean, there's a 20-year sentence for <laughs> you. So we were going to doors, and the, the, it's open, Mr McLean, it's open. <laughs> <laughs> They're all taking pictures and all that. Best pals, <laughs> go <laughs> a coffee. <laughs> They're all rattling like fuck. But I later found out that all we did was shift it to the Gorbals, mm. Apostle. You didn't shut the market. You shut your resection of it, but the junkies just go elsewhere because they need it. They're stealing a hundred pound. They're trying to make a hundred pound a day to feed a habit. Mm. They're not restricted, because in Govan we had maybe I remember there was thirteen smack dealers, smack sellers, in the wine alley at one point on any particular day. Mm. So that's how prevalent it was, because every time you shot one, another two sprung up. What's that bang? Oh, sorry, sorry, because they're all waiting for their opportunity to, to to get into the marketplace. Aye, we're going to take a very quick break uh, for some ads, and then we'll be back in a second. So obviously we've discussed the sort of the interesting stuff, the funny, the unusual, but there's also probably an aspect that the public just don't hear about. You know, mm-hmm. that maybe crimes that, that you wouldn't go into, you've never really told anybody, or maybe stuff that's kind of stayed with you. You're looking for an exclusive. Not so, aye, not so much an exclusive, but just, you know, <laughs> there's, there's obviously got to be a stressful element. I don't care how yeah. strong anybody is, you must have to deal with some horrible stuff. I mean, I, I, I just as I flicked through, I saw one of the headings oh, that was something about a baby 
yeah. which is the type of stuff. I mean, not that yeah. I want you to go into detail, but... It, the one you saw flicking through was a baby killer. It's baby called. Killer. It's just a guy that was trying to blackmail poisoned baby food in Marks and Spencer's, actually, Bloody and was hell. trying to blackmail. But that's no, that's not what you're after here. What you're after here is another podcast entirely when you talk about Locker Bear, you talk about serial killers, you talk mm. about child crimes against mm-hmm. children, paedophiles, and we had a rapist in government that was raping wee boys uh, that Jim Moffat and I caught, which is a cracking story, and the book got us into a lot of trouble yeah. because we were the 10%, and the boss was going down. Major inquiries are a big... I was watching... The fall last night on on Amazon, right. and it's they're always the same. These things. It's one senior detective that's in charge of everything, Aye. and everything, every decision, everything flows through that. It's a team game, a big inquiry like that. Mm-hmm. Maybe thirty, forty, fifty detectives working, sometimes over a nationwide, but it's a real team gathering uh, and information gathering operation that's going on. So with these inquiries. Uh, and, and Lockerbie, I mean, I could talk all day about Lockerbie. There's still guys suffering from that. And that was another big issue that came out of the book was mental health mm. of the officers and nurses and, and the emergency services. Nobody gives a jot, Sean. Mm. You see the headline, police shoot a guy on London Bridge. And all the emphasis is on the terrorist and his yeah. cause and, and the victims, rightly, the people that he might have killed or injured. But nobody gives a thought for that phrase, the police shot him. Aye. That cop that shot him, his life changed that day Aye. as well. Forever. That's it, he's taking a life. I had a mate, the last shooting that I was aware of in Strathclyde was at Charing Cross around the corner. My mate George Adair shot a guy in the taxi and it, it changed his life. Firstly, because he was treated so badly by the police. Yeah. They'd separated us all out. Individual statements interrogated. He was treated like a possible accused in the case. And all he'd done was save lives by Aye. shooting a robber that had a shotgun in his hand. So there's all of those issues going on uh, in, in Lockerbie. Castells is a horrible place. But the one I'm going to tell you is going to surprise you, but it'll make the point perfectly about what you're talking about. Because through the book, I've met lots of friends and associates and colleagues from years gone by, Mm -hmm. and none of them disagree with what I'm going to tell you. I was coming back from somewhere to Barhead Police Office, CID, and I heard a call going out about uh, a woman had trapped her neighbour's door, got no reply, hadn't seen him for two or three days. He lived on his own, she's worried about him, right? So it's a sudden death all day long, Mm. and it's a uniform job, but I'm passing it. I'm two minutes away, and it's a Sunday afternoon, everybody's busy. So I said, I'll nip in and see her, send somebody as soon as you can, but I'll get it, get things started. So I went away up, the old lady's there, and she said, oh, I've not seen him, son, blah, blah, blah. So I smashed a wee pane of glass, got in, and as soon as the smell hits you, in fact, the letterbox tells you right away, right? There's n- unmistakable. It's the first chapter in there. It's the first thing you'll learn. With the letterbox, what do you mean by it, when smell. you open it? Yeah. I thought you were going to say because there was hundreds of letters sticking in it that yeah. you hadn't taken it. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think his mail was the like, problem. I, there's about eight pints of milk. <laughs> he won the lottery. I wonder what's happened to this guy. Sorry, I saw the smell hit. She yeah, so go away in. And the, the old man, he must, from memory, he was late 70s, maybe early 80s. He'd been watching the telly. It was still on, turned down quite low. Half drunk cup of tea by, by his side <sighs> on his armchair. And he died peacefully. Hmm. Nice way to go. Aye. And uh, so I just uh, uh, 
got on the radio, got a doctor to announce life extinct, and it's just procedure from then on. We do it, poets do it, stand in their head. It's, it starts the book off. Mm. It's about death, because police deal with it all the time. Whether it's murder or suicide or sudden death or whatever it is, the police are the first on the scene. Do you is, know what I mean? Is, are they, is the sudden death one that they'll send, like, rookie or new police officers to quite early on just to get them used yeah. to it? Uh, yeah, and a post-mortem. Aye. Second or third chapter, and there's a post-mortem I had to go to. I'd come uh, because, because my sergeant said, go and see that. And once you've seen it, nothing will faze you. Aye. You'll never be sick at a crime scene or run away or anything. Aye. Once you've seen a post-mortem, and be sick, do whatever you have to do, just get it out of your system. Aye. Because there's no use to end it if you can't stomach it. You know Aye. what I mean? Aye. Deal with it and then be sick. That's the, the motto, really. <laughs> Because you can't see coppers standing going, it's horrible. That would be me. I'd be like, fuck that. Like, put me behind First aid my arse. Put me behind a desk, man. Like, I can't be dealing with that. Just finish them off. <laughs> Dig a hole. Bloody hell. Uh, so, God, so much to tell you. So much to tell Yeah, the old man. So, get away at all. And the, co- the cops came eventually. A doctor had been pronounced life and he gets taken away. And he haunted me, that old man. Now, by this time in my service, I had seen children murdered, road accidents, decapitation, road accidents, oh. drownings, oh, fires, fuck. Taking bodies out of all these environments, Aye. suicides, running in front of a bus, drownings. Oh, I could, the book does go on in <laughs> great length about some of them, you know, just to give a flavour of it, because people like that. I write cheery reads. <laughs> it's actually, some of it's quite funny. Um but uh, this old man, for months and months, Sean, I couldn't get him out. I don't mean all day. I wasn't thinking about him all day. I know. But I'd wake up during the night, and who's in my head? Mm. This old man. But he was nothing. It was, it was nothing. The incident was nothing. Aye. I didn't know him. There was no personal stuff there. There was nothing about the, the, the inquiry or the incident itself that was in any way notable. But it was maybe the wee straw that broke the camel's back in here somewhere. Aye, aye. It's, it's touched the nerve somewhere. But I spoke to the police doctor who was totally dismissive of it and he said, I'm not going to put anything in your record because these things can come back and haunt you. Mm. You're a nut job. Aye, you apply yeah. for a promotion or something. My career might have been entirely different because when I left Strathclyde, I went and did other security mm. stuff. They might not have taken me if they'd seen that in my record that I was a bunker nut. Because <laughs> that's how we talked about it in those aye, days. Aye. Nobody knew about mental health issues or counselling. I way back there. I mean, even only in the last five years have have things really changed. Society, you know, like now we're, we're so aware of how much society's attitude has changed. Yes, but that has been a very, very recent thing. Yes, totally. And probably the internet and the communications has opened all that up. Aye. Because in those days, police just went about their business and nobody really knew. Aye. It was only at court that anything would come up. There wasn't mm. the same coverage. And there was crime coverage, that the crime reporters who knew all the cops and who knew them. Now everybody's a cameraman out in that street, aye, aye. Some of the video footage that we see. I know. You're thinking, go and help them instead of videoing it. That's, that just blows my mind when you see people. That's our first thought is to record aye. something instead of actually helping. It's, it's like that whole, what's the, oh fuck, what do you call that, something, passerby syndrome or observer syndrome or something where everybody always expects that somebody else will just go yes. and do something. Yeah. I can't remember, somebody's probably screaming the name of that term in their car or whatever. Well, we're um, finishing a joke then, because there's so much, and I, I know wanted to is. tell you about my daughter as well, because the book's dedicated to my Aye, daughter, Louise, daughter Louise, who died in 2011, cystic fibrosis, yeah. but there's lots more that we can mm-hmm. talk about, but... The, the passerby syndrome 
there's a, a story about social workers. Police and social workers used to be in two opposite sides of the fence. They just didn't get on at all. And they were always at opposite extremes. And the, jo- the joke that we used to say about them was that uh, there's a guy lying in a doorway and he's obviously been battered. And he's unconscious, lying in blood. And everybody's giving him a wide berth. The passerbys are all whoosh, crossing the road and not even looking. Go out the way until a social worker comes along and sees him and runs across and bends down and sees the injuries and, oh, my God, this is terrible. I must find the person who did this and uh, help him. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Controversial on the end. <laughs> <laughs> no, well, this has been great. That is all we've got time for. I'm sure people are going to absolutely love this chat because I have. Uh, thanks again for coming in. Um, and I'll I, keep the gory stuff for another time. Exactly, Sean. we'll yeah. we'll have another Once one. Once you've if, read the book, exactly. So I can ask you about it. Well, uh, no, I'll be asking you questions. Aye, <laughs> <laughs> magic. No, thanks again, and uh, I, I look forward to sitting down and just going through some of the stories. I'm sure people are definitely going to want to hear a lot more. But that's that's thanks, the best Sean. thing. I leave them wanting more. That's it. And by then you'll be a fully fledged leap member because you're now the chairman <laughs> in Scotland. <laughs> 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 we discussed my salary. <laughs> Cheers, Simon. Thanks. Leathered was written, recorded and produced by Sean McDonald in association with The Big Light. Music and post-production by Brian McAlpine and for more information, go to thebiglight.com. If you like this podcast, please check out all our other series including Talk Media, You Could Start a Fight in an Empty House, Talking Derry Girls, Brave Your Day, The Tartan Noir Show, Double Scotch, Great Scott, Trust Me I'm a Leader, Unearthed, A Sonic Hug, and old school, all on the big light, Scotland's podcast network. From the big light studio.